Morning, church. Isn't it good to come together to worship? You know, there's a lot of places we can be, and trust me, there's, there's times when I'm on vacation, and it's, it's good to be away. It really is. And then there's other times when I sit there and say, it's good to be home in the church. And from various times when we've gone on the road or wherever we may be and we're away from our church family, when you get back with your church family, or let I me mean, put it this way, when you're away and you're visiting another church or somewhere, and it's not, it's not the same. So it feels good to be back home and with the people that we worship with. And so it's, it's, just, it's just good to be here. It's, it's just why I just want to share that with you this morning. Again, if you're, if you're visiting with us, I think Mike may just clear to felt that, bolt, that card. But I, I don't know, Mike, I can't remember if you said where to put it. You did? Okay, I can remember. I was like, that's okay, it's okay. So the blessings box is in the back. That's where we take our tithe and our offering. That's a part of worship too, is giving back to God. But those visitor uh, slips, those go in, the, in the, uh, the blessings box against the back wall there. Um, I, I couldn't remember I was going to mention it anyway, but um, I really appreciate you sharing that. Micah 6, uh, 8, um, a verse, man, I remember as a kid hearing that verse over and over. I would encourage you, go back, look at that verse again, and highlight it. it it's, it's a great verse. Um, what I'd like you to do right now is open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. We were in Ephesians last week, and I, and I want to sort of conclude some thoughts on this, on this chapter in the Scripture so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, and, and last week, while you're turning there, we talked about, you know, uh, by the grace of God, we've been given new life. We've been given new life. And for some of you, I, I, it's like, what does that mean, um, new life? It's like a do-over. <laughs> Isn't it good to have do-overs in life? And Ephesians 2 and we started in verse 1 last week, but 8 and 10 is where I'm having you turn now. But we, we learned that this new life means we, we have peace with God. There, there's no wrath between us and God anymore. And we also have a place with God. We have a position and we have help for the future. And, and as we look back maybe at that scripture and think about what does it mean to be in a relationship, to have a new life, that's what we're talking about in the experience and taste grace. We used that word a lot last week. We're going to use it a lot again today. And I read a story uh, about the Reverend Billy Graham. Many of you recognize that name, Reverend Billy Graham. And this is years ago, okay? He was driving through a small southern town. And as he was driving through the small southern town, he got pulled over. The policeman came up to his car and charged him with speeding. And uh, Reverend Billy Graham had right away admitted his guilt. He goes, guilty as charged. But uh, he was told by the officer that he would have to appear in court. So the Reverend Billy Graham shows up at court, and he's there, and the judge said, you know, guilty, not guilty, and he pleaded guilty. He knew he was over the speed limit. And he goes, well, and this will tell you right now how old the story is. He goes, that will be $10, a dollar for every mile per hour over the speed limit. Well, yeah, we'd all be speeding today if that was the case, right? Ten bucks, whatever. A um, lot different today. Uh, but suddenly in the midst of him handing out that fine to Reverend Billy Graham, he suddenly realized who he was. He recognized him. That's, that's the Reverend Billy Graham. I'm just, I just called him guilty. Um, and he, you know, he felt a little, I don't know what inside, but he looked at him and said, you, you have violated the law, and the fine has to be paid. But the judge went on to say this, but I'm going to pay it for you. So he took out of his wallet $10 and 
attached it to the ticket that was given to Billy Graham and said, I'm going to pay for that. Not only did he pay the ticket for Reverend Billy Graham, but afterwards he took him out for lunch and bought him a steak as well. How's that for a judge, right? (laughs) This is the kind of judge we want right there. He pays your fine and he gives you a steak as well. Church, that's, that's a good definition of grace. Is it not? That's a great definition of grace. To be forgiven and to be given more. That is grace. And when we truthfully examine our lives, we're not deserving of anything special, especially heaven. Especially heaven. Matter of fact, um, I'm going to say where you are in Ephesians chapter 2, okay? But take a look up on the screen. From Ephesians chapter 2, from the various verses beforehand, verse 1, this is how Paul describes us, okay? Sort of the guilty, right? Once we were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins. Verse 2, he says, you used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Verse 3 said, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, and you saw the three different verses there. Now let me take you to another one, Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, oh, did I skip past that one way too quick? Romans chapter 5, there's three descriptions as well. Romans chapter 5, it says this, verse 6, when we were utterly helpless, that is basically we couldn't save ourselves, okay, and we were sinners. Verse 8 says we were living against God, that is, while we were still sinning, while we're still sinners. And verse 10 says while we were still sinners. Now Paul, in Ephesians 2 and Romans 5, which we just put up there, doesn't really paint a great picture of us, does it? I mean, you look at that and you say, wow, it's sort of like Billy Graham, you sped beyond the speed limit. We have sinned beyond the sin limit. And we deserve to pay the penalty. And yet, like Billy Graham in that story, such as we being those people for whom God sent Jesus to die for, to pay the penalty, and to save. We are those people. We are those people. I don't know if you've ever made a mistake before and you thought, after you made that mistake, you thought, I'm in such big trouble. <laughs> this is the end. I mean, it's, it's over. I, am in, I, 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 I can't get out of this one. I'm so busted, right? I'm fired. Relationship is over. Uh, we're going to lose because of me. Um, you know it's your mistake. You know it's your error. You own up. It's your sin. And you know there's going to be a penalty. You know you've blown it, right? And you think there's no forgiveness. There's no comeback. Can everybody put themselves in a situation right now and think of that? Reflect back. Maybe you don't want to. Maybe you've spent years of counseling. You're like, I tried to get rid of that, right? And here I am digging it up. Sorry. But there's a great answer here. You know, my cousin and I, when we were, I'm going to say maybe 11 or 12 years old, all the Stump family, we'd get together at my grandpa's house. And he had this big house out in, in the country. And, and all of us cousins would get together, aunts and uncles. And as a younger uh, of, the, of the siblings, the youngest in my family, and then my cousin was the youngest in his family. And, you know, we'd watch our older brothers and sisters do all kinds of crazy stuff. And we wanted to be like them, Right. Well, there was one day, one gathering, where my brothers, I'm not going to tell you exactly what they're doing, but they're down the road from my grandpa's doing some stuff, and we're like, well, we want to do crazy stuff too. So, you know those little crabtree apples, and, and we found some of those crabtree apples, and we started pulling them off, and we thought, let's, let's line them up across the road so when cars go by, they'll squish apples. And we thought that was pretty cool as an 11, 12-year-old, right? 
And we kept doing that, and it's, it's dark now, and we thought, well, let's do something more. And we started rolling them across the road as a car would come. And again, we're not thinking too smart here. So kids, let me tell you right now, it's, it's a bad path. We're going the wrong direction here with the choices that we were making, okay? Because as a driver now, something comes rolling across the road, I'm probably swerving and it could cause an accident. I didn't think about that. My cousin didn't think about that. And I won't tell you how far it escalated, but we not only rolled the apples, we started doing other things with the apples too as cars were driving by, you can imagine, okay? Not thinking what we were doing would be bad or dangerous, especially for the driver. That last car that drove by slammed on its brakes, brake lights on, and my cousin and I looked at each other like, we're in trouble. It sort of hit us that what we were doing was wrong, way wrong. We were running in the house, okay? First of all, bad place to run to, okay? And I'll tell you why. You all know why, okay? Because mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, every, all the aunts, they're all in the house. We just basically ran into a den of lions, you know what I'm saying? We just go running in like, we're safe here, and we're looking, and we're just surrounded by family, and we're like, oh. So we went up the stair steps a little bit and sort of hit up on the stairway, and at the door, right, is the driver of the car, Okay. He came in, he was, he was upset, as he should be, and we're like, we're so in trouble. But here's the cool thing. You know who answered the door? My grandpa, the owner of the house. He opened the door and sort of settled things for us. And it just reminds me so much of what God does for us, because we are so guilty of sin, we have so messed up, we make mistakes, we blow it, we know we blew it, a relationship is gone, a game is lost, you know, I'm going to get fired, whatever it may be, but it's like in that moment when we know we deserve a penalty, God steps in in our sin and says, I'm forgiving you. And he takes the wrath from our penalty upon himself. You know, and Grandpa shut the door and just sort of turned around and looked at us and just sort of gave us a wink like, you guys know what you did, and you're lucky I was here for you today. And I'm going to tell you, we never rolled another apple off that tree again, okay? You know? But we learned. And I sit there and think, aren't we thankful that God looks at our lives and says, I'll save you. I'll rescue you. I know you got stuff going on in your life. And you earned what you earned, but I'm going to take the penalty for you. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Let's look at that together. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, says this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Our salvation, God forgiving us, that's his gift to us. We, we didn't do anything with this, right? We, we didn't save ourselves. Matter of fact, verse 9 says, Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, because if... We could earn our way to heaven. We would boast about it, but we can't. We can't work our way there. We can't do enough good things. We can't earn it. God gives it to us. It's his gift to us. Verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. We were created new in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. That was the scripture we ended up with last week, and I wanted to continue with there again. Let me take you to a couple other verses. Romans 5, 8, and sort of going back to what I was saying about my grandfather, says this, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we're still sinners. While we're still messing up, 
God sent his son Jesus Christ. While I'm sitting on that stairway, knowing that I'm in trouble, Grandpa went before me and eased the penalty. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, as we just read, we talked about how God saved us. That was his gift to us. Turn with me to another passage. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Old Testament. You're going to help me out with this one. So I want you to repeat this name with me, okay? You're going to learn a new name today. Maybe you've seen this and you're like, I've seen that name before. I have no idea how to pronounce it, okay? So we're going to break it down into four. Um, four syllables here. Repeat after me. Mef. E. Vo. Sheth. Let's try it again. Meth. E. Vo. Sheth. So that name is Mephibosheth. Okay, Mephibosheth. Look at verse 4 of 2 Samuel 4. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked up Mephibosheth, okay, and she fled. But as she hurried along, she dropped him and crippled him. It's sort of an unusual verse. If you, if you look at first, or 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 to 3, you sort of got this thing that's happening. And verse 4 is this verse. And then verse 5 on, it's like, that verse sort of falls in the middle of nowhere. Matter of fact, it's in parentheses in my Bible. It's like, oh, let's just throw that one in. We'll talk about it some other time. Right? We don't know much about Mephibosheth from this. Matter of fact, all you read in this verse is, as I said, it's a final parenthesis, is that he, we have his name, we know he had a problem. He got dropped, and he's crippled. That's about it. And it makes you want to figure out a little bit more, right? Maybe for some of you who are uh, detectives and, you know, clue sleuths, you're like, I want to figure this out, right? So dig a little further. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan's dad was King Saul, so he's King Saul's grandson, right? And Jonathan was David's really good friend, and... Um, Jonathan and his father died in this battle. So Mephibosheth was the last male descendant of King Saul. So basically, he's in line to step into the throne. Follow me so far? So at this time, only being 12 years old, Mephibosheth is crippled because of circumstances beyond his control. The nurse and the family heard that Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle. They're thinking, oh boy, David's going to become king. We've got to get out of here, right? Because when King Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, David becomes king. And when you get a new king in town, in those days, basically what happened is you eliminate the old king's family. So by tradition and by typically what happened, if you are left around in the palace and there's a new king coming, you're all going to be gone. And I mean bye-bye. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You are eliminated. You are exterminated. You are killed. Now David, though, he's a man after God's heart, right? He's a holy man. He doesn't plan to do that. But Saul's family doesn't know that. So they hurry to escape, and, in, and they're, during their hurrying and, and scattering, Mephibosheth is, slips out of the hands of the nurse. His feet are permanently damaged, crippled for life. And now we fast forward some years. Years later, nearly two decades later, 
Mephibosheth lives in this distant land. He's unable to help himself. He's fearful to talk to the king. doesn't want to talk to the king. He's unable to, to walk to the king. And in his life right now, he's sort of, I would say, reminding me a little bit of my relationship with God at one time. See, Romans 5, 6 says this, while we were utterly helpless, while we were unable to save ourselves, right? And I think about this, aren't we like that before we know Christ? Church, think about this. Before you gave your life to Jesus Christ, before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, before you ever came to church, before you ever came to Jesus Christ, you didn't have a relationship with the God of this world. You didn't know the King of Kings. Think back to those days. What was that like for you? What kind of person were you? We were spiritually unable to help ourselves, weren't we? We were sort of like Mephibosheth. We were crippled. We were lame. We couldn't walk to get to the king, and we wouldn't talk to the king because we were fearful of him. And that's the way we were with God, right? Well, during those years, from the time he was crippled to fast forward two decades later, during that time, King David became a very successful king. He loved God. His kingdom thrived. They were winning every battle. They found peace in the land. People were, were happy. They were thankful. Things were really good. Okay? So let's go to a different passage now. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 15 to 17. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 15 to 17. We're going to rewind back a little bit here to when David was a shepherd boy and he was a visitor to King Saul's court and he developed a relationship a good friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. They became good buddies. And they were outside one day, and they were talking, and I think Jonathan sort of recognized something was down the road was going to happen. And this is what he said in verse 15. He goes, If I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy all your enemies. Now we begin to see the depth of their friendship as we read on. Verse 17, he says, For Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. They had a strong bond as brothers. Not brother brothers, but as brothers in Christ, we would say, right? As good friends. Jonathan was aware of the political dynamic between the family of God, or family of David, and the family of Jonathan. He understood what was going on there. And as I said earlier, in those days, when the royal house replaced another Everybody in the former royalty was eliminated, right? To kill all the potential rulers from the old royal house. Now, Jonathan knew that one day, David would become king. And so as if he's saying, David, I know someday you're going to be king, so do me a favor, make a pact with me that my family will be okay. It's as if he knew this was coming. So Jonathan and David agreed to, to care for each other. And Jonathan agreed to care for David in the face of Saul's threat. Because we knew Saul did not like David. And Saul was always threatening David. And Saul wanted to eliminate David. And Jonathan said, I will care for you and help you from my father's threats. But protect me when you become king and my family. Turn to 2 Samuel now, chapter 9. So move forward one book, 2 Samuel, chapter 9. We move forward in this story. We read in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
One day David says, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So we fast forwarded here. We went back and looked at the relationship between Jonathan and David and the pact they made. Now we fast forward. Mephibosheth has been dropped and crippled and moved on in life. Jonathan and Saul are both dead. David's become king. And one day he's just sort of walking around. He's thinking, hmm, is there anybody I can show kindness to in Jonathan's family? I mean, if you, if you went back one chapter to chapter 8, you would read about how David asked God, God, what can I do for you? Can I build a kingdom for you or a temple for you? It's like, God, I want to I love you. I want to live for you. And then he goes like, no, what can I do for others? Like the love God, love others saying, like Jesus talked about, right? And then here in chapter 9, he's saying, what can I do for others? It's, it's a great love because, and it's a great act of love because Saul hated David. And yet David's looking at Saul's family and saying, what can I do for that family? You know, the family that hated me, except for Jonathan. Jonathan's good, right? David went against the customs and the principles of revenge and against the principle of self-preservation and said, what can I do for the family of my enemy Saul? What can I do for Saul's son Jonathan and his family? And again, I don't know if David is walking around his palace or he's up on the rooftop just lounging and, or whether he's looking back maybe to some past records of battles and he thought of Jonathan. I, I don't know how it came about, but God laid upon his heart just like he does us. Maybe you're driving down the road. You've probably done this before. And God brings somebody to mind, right? Why do you think that happens? I'm going I'm to ask you to do this. Somebody told me to do it one time. I'm going to ask you to do this. When God brings somebody to your mind, pray for them in that moment. Pray for them in that moment. If you have a dream about a brother or sister or your parent or a friend and you wake up and say, that was a weird dream about them, you know what? Pray for them. You're driving down the road, something comes to your mind about somebody, pray for them. God's probably bringing that person to your mind for a reason you may not understand. So in that moment, pray because God knows why. In this moment, he flashes back to the grace, the kindness that was shown to him. Saul could have killed him. Remember, Saul was going to kill him, and Jonathan saved him. Now David's like, I wonder if I can return that thanks, that kindness to Jonathan's family. So for some reason, he remembers, and he thinks back. And really, you know, that's probably the same way it should work for us. Can you think back to the last person that's shown you grace, giving you something you didn't deserve? Can you think back to when somebody showed you kindness when you should have not received it? Does it make you want to say, I need to do something for them? You know, it happens all the time at Christmas, right? Somebody gives you a gift. Oh, I should get them a gift, right? Outside of Christmas. Outside of birthdays. Outside of special occasions when, you know, you almost expect somebody to give you something. But out of the blue, somebody just gives you something out of love. And you want to reciprocate that love. You want to show grace and you want to do good to others. But why is that? I believe it's because it's the grace of God working through you. And it's not for our applause. Church, please do me a favor. When we do things for other people, I know it's so easy to want that applause, to pull out a selfie of me giving cookies to somebody. Right? Hey, you know what I did today for somebody? We post it, right? It's not for our applause. 
God doesn't want us to go out there and just show grace and love thereby so that we can get the glory. It's for his glory. It's for his glory. God never said, you know, he's like, hey, I saved you wretched sinners who couldn't save yourself and then posted it for everybody to see. God didn't do that. You know who posted that? Paul. Paul put that out there. He's the one that penned it. It was by the grace of God that we've received this. When we're utterly helpless, God saved us. Paul said that. David asked the question, is there anybody who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Kindness is like Old Testament grace in this, in this scripture here. And uh, sort of like mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Paul often talked uh, when he would write in Scripture, he would sometimes put grace and mercy together. First Timothy 1-2 says, I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God, the Father of Christ Jesus our Lord, give you grace and mercy and peace. John said this in 2 John 1-3, Grace, mercy, and peace, which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. Grace and mercy, right? We see a lot of that in the New Testament. But Old Testament, sometimes we don't see those exact words used. But this Old Testament word for kindness may have well been easily translated grace. And David's been shown grace, and so he reciprocates by showing grace and love back. Go back to 2 Samuel with me. 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, David goes on to say this. He summoned a man named Siva, who had been one of Saul's servants. And he says, are you Siva? And the king asked. He goes, yes, I am, sir, Siva replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness, God's kindness, it's grace, to them. Siva replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Okay, did you, did you read between the lines here on that last one? Conversation between the king and the servant. He's asking, is there anybody in the family? And he says, yes. He goes, one of Jonathan's son is still alive, and he's, he's crippled in both feet. Why did you have to throw that in? Why, why would he do that? If you read between the lines, it's, it's, under, it's sort of like, here's a servant who lives in this perfect palace, right? And he's talking to the king, and he's thinking about, well, there is somebody, but he's, he's crippled, hashtag, he's not perfect. He's not like this palace. He's probably not well-educated. He's not, you know, palace material, so to say, worthy of being in a place like this. He's, he's lame. He's crippled, right? Matter of fact, he's living in a place of nowhere. It goes on to say that the city or the town that he's living in is called Lodabar. Lodabar. And Lodabar means a place that is barren. No pasture. It's a nowhere. Oh, by the way, he, he's lame and he lives in a place that has nothing. He's not wealthy, he's not educated, he's, he's crippled, remember? So he probably shouldn't be a guy that's coming in here. Now, he didn't say all that. All he had to do was just say, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's crippled. Think about this for a second. Let's, let's pause and ask ourselves a question. What do we have that's fit for a king? What do we have to increase the value of heaven, of God's kingdom? I mean, if we're invited to the palace, as Mephibosheth was going to be taken to the palace eventually here, what about us going to heaven? 
What do any of us have that is of great value that we can offer to God to make his heaven any better? We've got nothing, right? We're all sort of like Mephibosheth here. We're all sort of lame. We're all sort of crippled in life, aren't we? We have nothing. And you know what's amazing? Is that God still loves us. David said in Psalm 103. Just take that off. Yeah, Psalm 103. Write this down. Come back and look at it another time. I'm going to read it to you. It says, the Lord is compassionate. The Lord is merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. Listen to this. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. Isn't that good? As a parent, have you ever gotten mad at your kid before and like, you just keep bringing it back up? You remember when, you remember when, it, and some students here and kids here right now are like, yeah, they keep doing it. Or maybe do we remember when we were kids how our parents like, do you remember when you broke that? I, every now and then, my sons remind me of a moment in my life when I got angry with them. Do you remember when you broke the spear, Dad? Yes, I remember that. Would you let it go? Right? God will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. Isn't that good? For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we're only dust. See, we deserve nothing, but yet when we ask for forgiveness, he gives us everything. That's grace, right? What does David do? He seeks out Mephibosheth, just like God seeks us out. Going back to 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verse 4, it says, Well, where is he, the king asked. Oh, and little bar? Oh, yeah, the lowly place. He says he's at the home of Machir, the son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I'm your servant. Now let's put ourselves in his shoes for a second, okay? Can you imagine? You're at home in Lodabar, a little place, and all of a sudden the king's chariots come into town, which you've never seen before. But you know, if the king's chariots are coming into town, you think back, this is it. Maybe he's coming for me to eliminate my family. And they come to your house, knock on your door, pick you up because you're crippled, put you in the chariot, and take you back to the palace. And now you are before the king, down on your knees, worried, fearing that the king wants your head on a platter. And instead, the first thing that the king says, David says, is what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you, verse 7, because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. You will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness, listen, to a dead dog like me? Do you see the confidence level that he has on himself right now? 
Not very high, right? The king summoned Saul's servant, Siva, and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Isn't that cool? This guy doesn't even belong there. He should have been eliminated. And David's like, he's eating at my table. He belongs to this family. Verse 11, Siva replied, Yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant. I'll do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Now imagine when David and his family come to the table all dressed elegantly, walking in, strutting in Absalom, handsome man, right? And his family gathers around the table, but you might hear the sound of crutches coming down the palace hallway as this crippled young man comes now amongst the table with all these other majestic, handsome, beautiful family members. He probably didn't feel like he belonged there, but the king welcomed him there. Church, John 1.12 says this, but to all who believed in Jesus Christ was accepted and God gave them right to become children of God. Isn't that cool? Remember that's our birth certificate as Christians, John 1.12? To all who believes, you are accepted and you're now called a child of God. As children of the King of Kings, although we've been crippled by our sin, We're welcomed at the table of God. We're part of his family. And it isn't our works. It isn't our looks. It isn't our accomplishments or our bank account that gets us into heaven or the palace room or at his table. We're like Mephibosheth, crippled by sin, limping along in life, but then God shows his grace to us. And we humbly accept that grace. So what do we have to offer back to the gift of grace? Think about it. God's shown us all grace. What do we have to give back to him? Repeat after me. Nothing. We have nothing, we have nothing right? We don't have anything we can offer back to God. He shows us grace. He welcomes us into the family. We can eat at his table. And what do we have to give back to God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. See, as God's children, He's given us spiritual blessings too. We don't only get grace and we're saved from sin, but He blesses us with these spiritual blessings. He gives us spiritual gifts. What do we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10? Let me read it to you again. God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit from this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are what? God's masterpiece. Church, stop looking in the mirror and knocking yourself around. I'm not worthy. I'm no good. I mess up. I screw up. You're God's masterpiece. You've been saved. You're welcomed at his table. He's shown grace to you. He's filled you with every spiritual blessing you need. And he's given you a gift to use. Last week we heard the personal stories of a couple families. And during their ordinary lives, they experienced something very unordinary. One tragic, one routine. Both tasted God giving them something they didn't deserve. 
Julie Borden shared with us how uh, through her battle to live, she wasn't bitter, but she was grateful for life. And Steve and Joy Frucci shared that they learned in their stubbornness to do life on their own that first time around. It was sort of in a sense a way of God reject, or um, a way of rejecting God's love that was being shown through others. But other people wanted to help, and they sort of rejected all that. But because of God showing His grace to them, now they want to be grace givers. Taking the grace of God, the love of God that's been shown to us, we now want to show that to others. And maybe we don't deserve an oil change. Maybe we don't deserve a home-cooked meal by somebody else. Maybe we don't deserve a phone call or a visit. Maybe we don't deserve any of those things, right? But by the grace of God, we are saved. We are new in Christ. And church, if you're new in Christ, new in Christ people don't sit around waiting for more to be given to them. We've already been given to. Now we go give to others. We take the grace of God and we share that with others. Paul said he created us anew in Christ. Why? So we can do the good things that God planned long ago for us. Now, if I read that correctly, it didn't say, we were created new in Christ so that we can keep receiving good things from other people. No, we're created new in Christ so that we can do the good things that he planned for us to do long ago. As a child of God, we've been redeemed, we've been sanctified, we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. So we've been picked up and basically placed at the table of God. And we get to feast on the goodness of our Heavenly Father. So as we're sitting there feasting, very thankful for what God's given us, let's not forget where we've been. The condition from which Jesus saved us. Those memories are the best fuel for the gratitude to Christ for all He's done on our behalf. Amen? And as I concluded last week's sermon, we looked at a scripture. I'm going to ask you to look at it again. It's in 1 Peter 4.10. Stephen Joy mentioned this. I mentioned it at the end of the sermon. I'm going to wrap it up now with going over this verse one more time. God's given each of us a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them to serve one another. In other words, each of us have received a gift from God. You can use it to serve one another as God's stewards of his great grace. So no matter who you are in this room today, as a child of God, you've been given a gift. Use it for his glory. Use it for his glory. Those gifts were not earned. There's not levels you pass on from one to another. It's not like a video game, like I'm going to earn more levels in my spiritual life. It's not like that. God's given you a gift. God-given. What are you doing with them? Serve one another. Serve one another. You know, some of us might be waiting for the right time to serve God. You're like, well, when my kids get older, or, or when I graduate, or, or when I retire, or when this or that. You know what? You know what the best time to use God's gifts are? Now. What are you waiting for? You know what I love about this church? Seeing people serve. Seeing people love each other. Seeing people be the church. You know how fun it is to hear stories, to see things happening. And it's, it's, listen, it's not pride in true north, okay? Anytime I see Christians living it out, we're doing what God's asked us to do. And what I love about this church is that you are becoming a very vibrant, exciting body of believers who fully have been blessed by the grace of God and you're ready to show that to others. 
Steve, Joy, how many people called you this past week? I'm just sort of curious. Do you have a number? How many? 15? Wow, right? 15 people contacted you saying, we want to be a part of the grace-giving movement here. That's incredible. And here's the thing. If, if you didn't call them, that's fine. It's not like, oh, I'm out of the loop. Can't be part of the grace givers. Yeah? Or the storm chasers, is that what you call them? Jeez. All right. Is there a B team I can be a part of? Yeah. Listen, some of us sort of work that way. It's like, I don't need a program. I don't need a group to be a part of. I'm just going to go do it. Good. Go do it. Okay? If you're like other people, like, I, I like working together. I like working more with other people. or I want to be held accountable. Then call them up. And hopefully as more and more people in our church are going through tough times, you're getting a call from other people in the church. And it's no longer a a storm-chasing moment or an organized moment. It's just so fluid. It's just so natural. Because now you've sort of gotten to the loop of, you know what? God keeps giving me grace. I want to keep giving it back. God keeps giving me grace. I want to keep giving it back. Worship team, would you please come forward? Church, we can show the love of God and the grace of God every day, any day of the week. You don't need to wait for somebody to be sick. You don't need to wait for a phone call from the fruit. You say, hey, we need to get some meals around. Hey, we got somebody in the hospital. You don't need to wait for that. As soon as you see something happen around you, it's like, you know what? I can show God's grace to this people in this moment by simply just loving on them. Then go do it. Go do it. You've been given all you need. God's Spirit is within you. You know, we're told in 1 Timothy to pray. And pray for everyone you know. Some of us think that prayer is the last resort. Prayer is the first resort. Right, Rhonda? So if you're like, well, I'm not sure how I can give or I can't make a meal. Here's the first thing you do. You pray. As many people as are in this room this morning, that's how many prayers can be going out on a daily basis when we really get down to it and get on our knees and say, you know what? I can't cook a meal, but I can pray for you. When you pray for other people, it's an incredible thing. Incredible thing. Church, we are like Mephibosheth. Crippled and lame, but welcomed at the table of a king. Isn't that a great thing? So if you're walking around today, sort of like down and sort of depressed or whatever, do me a favor. Understand truth. Understand truth. You're a child of the king. Welcomed at the table. That's a good thing. Amen. Please stand. And as one who's been welcomed at the table, let's share what we have at the table with others. Let's be a church that reaches out and shows the grace of God to others. Those who don't know Jesus, let's tell them who Jesus is. Those who are unchurched, let's help them find a church. If it's not our church, point them to another church. If they don't have a Bible, let's give them a Bible in their hand. If they need prayer, let's pray with them. They need a meal, make a meal delivered. You can't make a meal, order a pizza. All right? It's really simple. It's really simple. God's given us so much. We're blessed. Look at the person next to you and tell them they're blessed right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that blessing, let's go give to somebody else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. You've blessed us with so much. You've given us so much. We have been crippled and lame, walking around, trying to walk around. We can't. We're trying to get somewhere on our own. We can't. And finally, you sent Jesus Christ. Pick us up and through his sacrifice, 
through his love, we now have access to you, Heavenly Father. It's by your grace we are saved. It's by your grace we are at your table. It's by your grace we have been given every spiritual blessing we need. So God, by your grace, all that we've been given, we want to give back to you. So God, lift lift up our heads. Lift up our hearts. Let us remember how grace-filled we are. Put somebody on our heart right now, God, that we need to go show grace to. Maybe we need to go forgive somebody. Maybe we need to go do something for somebody. Maybe we need to go pray for somebody. Place that person on our heart right now, God. Let's invite them to the table. God, as we sing to you now, we want to worship you with all we have. In my name we pray. Amen.